Oh, what's cracking, lovely people? Welcome to the Big Feed Up HQ podcast. I'm your host, Matt Gardner, and I'm a nutritional therapist specialising in sports nutrition. Thank you for downloading and listening in. The podcast generally focuses on nutrition, movement and outdoor experiences. And at this point, I've got over 135 episodes up and available to you. So after you listen to this one, look back at some of the others and see which titles resonate with you. And I hope you find something useful. The show is supported by 33 Fuel, who produce natural and powerful sports nutrition products. Use Matt 10 at checkout for 10% off your first order. They have a Black Friday deal on an energy and immune support bundle where you save £6 on 10 chia seed energy gels and ultimate greens powder. Link in the show notes. So... If you're keen on exploring natural sports nutrition-based products for fueling and recovery purposes, definitely take a look and I hope you find something useful. The show is also supported by Attack the Day. Attack the Day was founded three years ago by two best mates, Sam and Rory, who met through rowing. They then went on to compete in Ironmans against one another. And now they run ATD and seek to inspire others through a shared passion for mountaineering, outdoor adventures and all things fitness. ATD combined fitness, adventure and outdoors in order to bring together a community of like-minded athletes and weekend warriors who love getting outside for epic adventures and inspiring others to live a more active and healthy lifestyle. Check them out on socials. So it's at attacktheday underscore on Instagram or their website attacktheday.co.uk for some truly great outdoor fitness, adventure and lifestyle clothing. Be sure to get involved with some of their events planned for the next year. So they're doing a 24-hour trail run challenge in snowdonia uh, triathlon weekends in the hills in tuscany and much more so you you uh, come on you can subscribe to weekly monday morning emails for content on fitness performance events health and lots more by going to their website and punching in your details so as a listener to this show you can get a healthy discount on their clothing by using the code mat 20 for a 20 percent discount on your first order We made it lovely, people. So if you like the show, please share it with someone. Ultimately, it's the only way the show will grow. And as always, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or Spotify and leave me a comment or review and you'll get the episode each week into your feed. So today I'm speaking to Jinin Rabi and Jinin is a registered nutritionist and is currently nearly completing her or she's near her completion with her PhD research where she has a special research area in type 2 diabetes prevention in ethnic minority groups. Jinan is also a personal trainer and volunteer with the social enterprise Hop On, based in West Yorkshire, who have launched a series of activities, mainly cycling, targeting women to connect communities, increase their social cohesion and empower women to build confidence through sport. At present, Jinan is undertaking training with British weightlifting to deliver coaching Olympic lifting to these groups to tackle barriers in ethnic minority groups oh I think this is going to be a good one lovely people so I hope you enjoy it Jinan welcome to the show hi Matt how are you I'm doing really well it's brilliant to get some of your time and I think We've obviously got to know each other really well over the last few weeks with some work that we're doing together, you know, outside of the podcast and things. But I think for the listeners, you're you're a new guest. You're a bit of a social media enigma. So people can find you in certain places, but not too many. So I think it would just be brilliant to hear 
um, you know, firstly, how are you and where are you? And, um, you know, what you've been doing during the lockdown period, the second lockdown period. And then I'm really looking forward to getting into your to your research area and talking about diabetes and, and ethnic minorities and things. So, yeah, it'd be great to just just get a little bit of uh, of an update on on how things are and, and where you are, really. Well, thank you for having me on, Matt. I'm really excited for our um, discussion around my around my research amongst other things. Um, so yeah, lockdown's been interesting to um, say the least. Um, I think one thing that's kind of um, come or like resurfaced for me is um, like a lot of things around like the, the things that have closed, like for example, like gyms closing and how that's affected people. Like I've, I've worked in, in weight management um, for a few years, NHS weight management and also private practice. And, you know, I've had like thousands of um, consultancies where I've spoken about motivation and barriers and trying to get people up on their feet. And I think I've been one of those, um, I don't like to use the word, but victims where, you know, I've literally not been to the gym in almost a year now, so it's getting to me a little bit. So all of that, you know, all the stuff that we've gone through in clinic, it, it's kind of come back to me where, you know, I'm starting to understand a bit more around the kind of behaviours and how lockdown, um, like, influences us. So it's quite interesting, um, like, looking at the kind of the psycho- psychological impacts of, like, quarantine and um, I think it'd be interesting to look at, you know, the before and after and hopefully when we do get an after and how, how that shapes. But... Yeah, at the moment, I'm just um, working towards completion for my PhD. Um, so I'm wrapping that up. Um, I feel like I've been saying that for the last four years, but yeah, hopefully we're coming to an end um, of my quarantine tunnel. So yeah, I'm look, looking forward to getting that done. So what I'm hearing is obviously you've, you've had a bit of a change in terms of gyms and things have been closed and you kind of wanted to maybe get back into that, but you haven't yet. Um, in terms of like the 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 lecturing and and some of the research side of, of your role, were you doing much of that in person this year, or has everything been online? And and if it has been online, you know what's what's that been like? Has that been challenging? Yeah, so I think initially, like around March time, um, we were still like face to face. So um, a lot of the lecturing that I was doing at um, Leeds Beckett University at that time. It was, um, I remember we were talking about COVID, but we didn't know it was such a, a big thing at that point. So we were all more kind of worried about, you know, are we going to get to go on our holidays in, in Easter? Um, and things just kind of took a rapid turn. So it went from delivering, you know, lectures and practical to all of a sudden, you know, pack your desk if you're working from home until until further notice. So from a lecturing point of view, everything's kind of gone online Um I'm now working with um, Sheffield Hallam University, delivering their lectures, so some of their lectures, um, and that's pretty much all online. Um, having said that, we've kind of been in and out of the lockdown. We've been um, in and out of different tier systems. So at one point, we were face-to-face. I think I did that for about a week or two, um, and then we went back to online. So it's been quite interesting. I think um, as a society, we're all kind, kind of starting to live with the the new normal we say um so yeah it has been quite quite an adjustment but um i think yeah we're getting there aren't we yeah 100 percent. and in terms of the lecturing and and things like that obviously you work you're working for a few universities and things is it because i think people that are aware of how how the phd process and things work and 
the research you do and, and the specialist area that hopefully we'll get onto in a minute. Um, but then part of it is obviously lecturing and delivering things to undergrad and re, you know really adding value in that side of things. And speaking to some people, they do they enjoy it, they they thrive, they really like to do it. And then others, it's obviously it's part of the job that they end up just ticking the boxes really. And we've all sat in front of two different types of lecturers and teachers over the time, haven't we? People that are very passionate and people that are obviously having to turn up because they know it's just part of the job. So like, where do you think you kind of fall in all of that? You're obviously quite experienced. You've done quite a few years there now. Um, and it's kind of been backed against the wall with some of this online stuff. So I'm sure it hasn't been easy. Um, like, how, how do you find it? I think it's um, it works for a lot of our students and also um, worth noting our staff as well. So for a lot of us working from home, you know, firstly the commute um, is you know reduced or even like we're not having to commute anymore. So we're getting longer longer resting hours between between working. So that's a positive thing. So, you know, you're turning up at your desk or you know your screen feeling a bit more um, refreshed. So. For staff, it's a positive thing. Um, for students as well, for those that have like childcare or um, other kind of commitments where they need to be at home, it's been great for them being online. Um, I think when I was doing the kind of blended learning or, or the face-to-face kind of teaching um, at the university, one thing that kind of stood out was that not everyone is in that kind of situation. So we had a lot of students that were um, kind of living in isolation or like living in student halls where they didn't have much of a network around them and um, they weren't able to go back home for whatever reason it's possible that um you know it, it's a long trek which is you know from a financial point of view makes it impossible but also a lot of them were um, like european um like nationals or even international students so i think for a lot of people have been hit quite hard um they don't have that you know that social kind of interaction so yeah, I think one of the negatives or one of the disadvantages about all of this online teaching is that it's very difficult as a as a staff member to teach because you don't get that same emotional feedback. So, you know, a lot of students don't have their cameras on for whatever reasons. To be honest, if I was a student, I probably would do the same. I'd be sat there in my pyjamas. So I do understand it, but um, as a lecturer, it can be quite difficult because you just don't, you're not getting that feedback. So you're not getting, you know, even the nods or the eye contact or, you know, the occasional questions. So it's pretty much like talking to a blank screen, which can be quite, um, quite exhausting at times. Um, but yeah, likewise for the students, I think um, they can possibly get a bit, you know, bored um, because it's just a lecturer that's talking for a few hours and they might not feel like confident enough to um, step up and talk as well with our sessions all being kind of recorded for those that are, that are missing out on content, they can play back later. So I know a lot of people do have issues with things being recorded and, and played back um, for, for the people. So um, it's a bit of a mix, really. It can be quite difficult from in the kind of subject area that I'm delivering, which is um, a lot of nutrition and food science, but also overlapping into food marketing. Um, there are challenges. We're not able to deliver a lot of our practicals. So, for example, back in March at Leeds Beckett, it was um, teaching about like cultural foods and diets and running like um, different practicals around that. So looking at like food reformulation. So, for example, taking an ethnic um, kind of dish, um, a traditional dish, 
and making it healthier um, things that kind of come into practice if you go on to work as a dietitian or a nutritionist how you can help your clients or your patients cook um you know the traditional dishes healthier so things like that we're not we not we don't really have the opportunity to do that at the moment you can't really do something like that remotely you can only like find person to links or provide resources in which you you know you trust they do it in their own time but yeah you just don't have that same kind of um that level of interaction is quite difficult yeah definitely so i'm hearing there's obviously positives and negatives for some people who are enjoying not having to commute and then they can like you said sit in the comfort of their own homes and learn and things they find it quite useful and it's very flexible for their lifestyles but yeah apart from obviously hearing little bits on the news and then I listened to a it was like a BBC food program uh, the BBC Radio 4 they have a podcast recently and they um, put a, uh, a kind of university special you know a few universities I think maybe up in Manchester or something under under the kind of microscope and it was yeah it was quite shocking to hear like you said in terms of students getting charged money for food deliveries uh, you know over and above what they should be paying and um having to stay in isolation and like you said it's not easy for a young person or you know a person of any any age getting up and, and moving away from home and living in halls and not not getting that um, that emotional connection like you said with a lecturer or a researcher like yourself who is passionate about the the, the topic um and and then yeah we're quite similar obviously we connected through um some some work we're, we're doing that we might get onto that's based around digital healthcare and diabetes and stuff but the practical side and what you're talking about uh, um not necessarily cooking it um and and getting stuck in and hands dirty but just being aware of boots on the ground with uh making these kind of traditional dishes healthier and things like that and all those kind of conversations where you take that 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 food science and nutrition science and the research and things and then you bring it all the way to actually what someone having on their plate that stuff's really important in someone's learning journey isn't it and if that isn't there and they're just getting the kind of i don't want to call it dry but you know all of the the biochemistry uh the the stats the physiology it's it's a lot to take on isn't it and it's it feels quite far removed from the from the from the kind of what what are you saying in the consultation process or what's what's the client ending up going going home with because there's so much information over this side isn't there it's quite hard to bring it together yeah yeah no and even like from um i've got a lot of colleagues who are um, still doing their phd their data collection within their phd research and um yeah there's been several challenges for them too so for for instance from a from a research perspective when you're you know out on the field or when you're collecting um when you're doing like focus groups or interviews um you know whatever topic it may be you, there are limitations with doing that you know digitally um you don't have that same interactions all the things we kind of spoke about before so a lot of people a lot of colleagues i know their kind of progress has been hindered um, by you know taking that that digital move so that's one of the, the big limitations and um, but also even like when it comes to like anthropometrics so you know taking measurements um you know for persons and like if, if you're working on a study or even in clinic things like waist circumference or um you know height or like measurements of the um like body shape or whatever it is you're not really able to do that yourself so we're having to um a lot of my colleagues are having to um, you know, kind of train the um, the participant to do that themselves, or the client to do that to do it themselves. And there's limitations in that because you know we we both know as people who've done such measurements, there's a lot of training behind it. So you know, if you get one part of it wrong, you're you're going to be left with kind of work that's um, 
not so accurate so yeah mm. yeah it's disjointed and having to get the like you said the client or the patient or the user to do it themselves it's obviously better than nothing but then like you said how accurate is it and yeah, I bet it's a, it's, it's, it's a tough time for people trying to do research, especially being hands-on and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it's it's definitely disruptive. Um, but I suppose the, the the good thing for you, in in a way, is that over the years, obviously, before this all happened, you had you had put together quite a lot of research and gathered quite a bit of data. And obviously, you're now in the in the kind of write-up phase, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So I think I think this is probably a good good place to dovetail into um exactly how we you know how how we kind of uh, i suppose connected around um health blood sugar patterns of eating you know we we've been talking about diabetes we worked together a bit in in a kind of like digital healthcare platform and um yeah we had a really good discussion the other week around your area of research and why you're so passionate about it and your background and i think it would just it'll be brilliant to bring that to the listener so um i'm not exactly sure like where to start because there's obviously quite a lot to unpack but maybe you know maybe you you can you can pick up in a certain place and then i'll hopefully come in with a few thoughts and and yeah reflect on little little parts and we can we can hopefully have a good good bit of a conversation around this yeah so you no, know, like you said matt i was one of the lucky ones that i got my data collected pre-covid so I was very lucky that I was able to do that. So um, my research basically looks at type 2 diabetes prevention in the Arab ethnic minority group. Um, so we know that the Arab ethnic groups, and particularly um, you know, abroad and even in the UK, were high at risk of developing type 2 diabetes compared to like the majority population. Um, there's not a lot of research around um, like culturally tailored research looking at reducing health disparities um, in this population group. So my project or my research rather, it addresses the feasibility and acceptability of um, diabetes prevention programs and intervention components for a program. So I've targeted the Arab group, which is where, which is my ethnic background. So I was born and raised in um, England, um, but my Arab, like my ethnic groups are Arab. So within my research, um, it pretty much, um, how do I condense four years? So um, it was was mixed methods. So I looked at, firstly, a systematic systematic review. So I was basically looking at all the research out there around um, prevention programs in the Arab ethnic group, looking at what worked um, and what didn't. So for example, if one had like, if one was more of a lifestyle intervention, looking at breaking it down. So, for example, um, you know, in Turkey, we had a program that was done in um, the Arab ethnic group, and that was looking at um, like six sessions over 12 weeks and BMI dropped by this much, um, like other blood uh, markers, like things like HbA1c, which is the level of blood sugars that drops. So it's pretty much looking like splitting up each every piece of research out there in the Arab ethnic group and breaking it down to identify like the to have to explore the key identifiable components which were um successful really. So following that, um the next kind of part of it was to um look at exploring views of the population. So we were doing focus groups and interviews with my um with my like chosen group, which was the Arab ethnic group. And that was um quite interesting so it, it used um like a 
is a particular framework called Grounded Theory, but it's just exploring um, data, so looking at what people are saying and literally doing a line-by-line -line analysis, which is what I've been doing um, all morning, which is pretty much why I'm a bit brain-dead right now, I'm a bit lost for words, but yeah, so it was just breaking everything down, so it does get quite interesting, because you, you code everything, and then you put everything together into like themes, and then you're able to like draw themes and um, talk about them. So my final part of my PhD following that was a feasibility study. So that I was exploring um, like how acceptable a lifestyle intervention was to reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes. So all of these um, kind of like approaches, like uh, all the parts of my thesis, they were based on like the, the UK's medical medical research council's guidance on the um, on the iterative development of complex interventions. So it's a framework that's used to kind of develop um, an intervention and it was underpinned by like behavioral change theory so that just sounds like a lot of um a lot of nonsense to um a lot of like non non phds um i've taken a, a few a few years trying to explain to my to my husband what my research is around and he just thinks i i do diabetes and tell everyone to stop eating sugar but it gets a bit more um a bit more complex than that but yeah really interesting so um within my research briefly um like I said, we looked at the reviews and looked at what's out there and based on what people were saying, so like a few examples of the questions is like, what do you know about diabetes? Where would you go for help if you wanted to know, if, um, so where would you go for information if you wanted to know about diabetes and what are the barriers um, to health? So what is kind of like stopping you from living a healthier life? So it was exploring all of them to put together um, a pilot study so looking at um, or piloting components even um so yeah one of the things that um we drew so that's uh, the royal we me myself and i so it was um looking at um analyzing data so quite interesting we had a varied um a varied um population um, or group of participants even so we had um, a lot of them were muslim arabs we had a few um, Jewish Arabs, which was quite interesting, um, and Christian Arabs, and even like non-religious ones. So the idea behind that was to contact as many people as possible to get um, a wide um, kind of range of, of voices for us in, for us to be do this to do this properly. Um, one of the main things that we got from it was, and I, I was actually writing about this before in my thesis, but. Um, a common theme or a common analysis was people will say if you are doing an intervention then center it around food if you use food as an incentive people will come so it was um, a case of you know arabs love food you know food plus intervention equals successful diabetes prevention program so it was trying to dissect that and put it into an actual um it could create an actual intervention out of that so fun <laughs> Excellent. Look, that you know that's brilliant, and I think people people can take a lot from that. And obviously, there's a lot of strands that we can kind of go down and pull apart there. But I think I'd maybe highlight that word acceptable or acceptability, um, because I know we've had conversations before, off off air, obviously around um, you know in the coal face when you're putting kind of these things together, and like you said there, uh, what 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 are the the participants and people in the communities know. Um, where would they go for information and, and what are the barriers? I find that really interesting. And like you said, if we if we get past the point of, OK, people might be eating too much. There might be a lot of sugar, high fat, all those kind of things, lots of calories. But what 
what's the behaviour side of things? Um, I'd be I'd be keen to know a bit more from you about this. I don't know if I can use the word feasting, but like you said, yeah. l- lots of food all the time. Is it is it because it's uh, constantly celebrating things, or that's what's always done? There's just got to be a range of foods. Is it important for families to always put this out to show that they have, um, you know, the ability to cook and feed people? It'd be great to maybe just pick that apart a bit. You know, that side of things that 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 you've obviously know from from growing up, but also from just meeting so many different types of people as well. Yeah, sure. So. Um, interesting you use that word um, that comes up a lot in my research so feasting um, I do refer to the feasting culture quite a lot within my uh, within my thesis so I, I would say it's um, acceptable or okay to use that term um, so yeah a lot of interesting um, points there so starting off with um, the kind of behaviours so one thing that stood out in the um, in the interviews the focus groups the questionnaires it was that um, there was kind of an acceptance that being of Arab ethnic um, origin, um, you're more likely to get diabetes. The people were were aware of that, and because they were aware of that, they seemed to be almost like accepting of their fate almost. So, um, especially with a lot of the um, more kind of practicing or more religious ones, it was like a lot of quotes came up that was like, you know, it's if it's in God's hands or, you know, if I'm meant to get diabetes, I will get diabetes. So there, there was a lot of that. Um, there was a lot of, well, you know, I've got um, a lot of family, I've got di- um, diabetes in my family history, so I'm more likely to get it. So, you know, why not just enjoy my food because I'm going to be doomed to get it anyway. So it was almost like a kind of acceptance of fate. Um, however going back to the kind of like the, the broader kind of themes that kind of emerged from my research they were around um like looking at the kind of dietary behaviors um establishing the knowledge of diabetes within the group looking at the barriers to health and also exploring the components for the potential um, diabetes prevention program so there were influences that were facilitated by both religion and culture. Um, there seemed to be elements of eating to socialise and also um, a lot currently as well around not promoting like food wastage. And it was thought that they were the kind of main points which led to um, like the overconsumption of food um, to do this. So th- there was a lot of, within the discussions, like the social, the cultural importance of food is quite prominent and then views were shared by, you know, the, the wide range of participants from young to old, um, both born in the UK and, and abroad. Um, the common views were that participants were consuming larger portions and um, there were mixed ideas around the healthiness of the traditional diet. So there were a few um, snippets I was analysing this morning, uh, like within the realms of diet. So like several participants like reference the consumption of fruits and vegetables. So um, and it's conflicts as well with a traditional Arab diet. So it was a lot of um, a lot of fruits and vegetables are consumed in the diet. It's, a, it's quite a Mediterranean diet. So traditionally, like for breakfast, you would have um, like a, a kind of a carbohydrate based product so possibly like bread and you'd, you might even have like an omelet with it so you've got your protein aspects there but you will have like a side off like a salad but you know you and I both know um it, it's not when we're looking at like weight and we're looking at general health it's not as simple as kind of you know what you take in is what you you know what your output is but 
there did seem to be like excessive calories that were consumed, um, excessive portion sizes, and it was even the idea of portion sizes. But beyond that, looking at the social um, aspect of like the Arab kind of culture, there's an element of food in everything. So, you know, when someone dies, you take over food. When there's a funeral, there's a, a banquet of food. When someone's born, so, you know, weddings, funerals, um, births, you know, it literally just goes on. Um, and it's quite interesting. I was reading an interesting paper. Um, I can't remember the name off the head, but it was looking, it was like a 1986 paper, but it was looking at, um, at the Arab, I think it was looking at the UAE, so the United Arab Emirates, is looking at norms and, and culture, and it's not really changed much since then, so what, it's nearly, uh, it's been over 30 years now, but it's not really changed much, so um, one part that struck me was like in, in Arab countries, um, like like traditionally, when you'd go to like an outpatient department in a hospital, if, if you go to this hospital, you're like offered black coffee with like um, dates or something like that. So like date fruit. And it's, it's seen that in the Arab culture, you kind of like express your, um, like your hospitality or your generosity through food. So that's something that's quite, quite strong and something that um, Arabs are kind of like renowned for where, food is um, a big part of the culture so looking at religion um, and that's based on the assumption or based on the research around um, these Arab participants being Muslim and um, there's a lot in in Islam that talks around um, like hospitality and generosity now um, the reason I raise that point is that there's also a lot in the religion um, of Islam around um, not just kind of like reinforcing you know the belief that hospitality is you know a, a positive act but it looks around moderation so everything is moderation so there are numerous numerous quotes i can i can pull up but it talks about um, moderation in in multiple ways so there's um a very famous um narration so we call it a hadith which is um basically like a like an authentic narration that's something has been changed like linked back to you know hundreds thousands of years ago and um it's a quote that talks about um how when you're eating like a third of your stomach should be full um of of air a third of it should be full of um, water and a third of it should be full of food so there's a lot around that where it looks at um the idea behind it is you know moderation you don't want to eat too much um and even within the religion it talks about like gluttony and um you know lavishness and how it's something that's like um i don't use the word forbidding because it's quite extreme but you know something that you're not really meant to be doing um sure. so a lot of my research or my intervention it kind of looks at using um you know kind of islamic or, or, or religious um like values and teachings to try to help people live a healthier life because um you know not many people w- would argue with it then that's fascinating so like you said maybe as as part of a um if we can use the term intervention you might you might look back and make people aware of some of that you know get them reading trying to interpret things and connect with them on that level as well like you said and then also obviously discussions around portion size the total amount of food the type those things are often harder because people have either got a way that they grew up and their relationship with food like you said if they're going to lots of events that are on all the time and there's this kind of all you can eat 
uh, culture and, and uh, celebration mode, then it's hard. But that angle is really interesting how you, you go back and, and you look into that. That third, third, third is, yes, yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And, and why not? Why not just bring it up? And it's good because I assume you're not you're not then saying this is what you have to do. It's actually like, look, why don't you be aware of this? Consider it. Look at your environment, what's going on the plate, all the social events and things you're going to and stuff like that. And, um, you know, let's see what we can do here. Or um, do you do you then get some of the participants and people that you've met over over time come back to you and say, oh, this is interesting or like, what do you what do you think had had an impact? I know, obviously, you're still teasing out the results, but did did you connect with a few people on certain levels and, and what do you think worked quite well? Yeah, so within the like kind of the ethics of the research, it was covered. Um, you know, I was able to collect data until a short time after the intervention. So in this case, there wasn't much of a follow up. Um, however, um, and I might as well bring this up now, seeing as it's perfect time. There was a, a faith leader based in Birmingham, and he was one of the um, one of the like imams we call it so it's basically like a pope who was um delivering so one of the intervention components it looked at the friday sermon so friday the friday prayer in our religion it's seen as like a, um, a compulsory kind of act so if you can go to a mosque you would go to a mosque and pray um the prayer if you can do it at home you do it at home but part of that actual that, that friday afternoon prayer um it there's a sermon in it so similar how you, when you'd go to a church on Sunday morning, you'd have the, the priest talking for 20, 30 minutes about, you know, contemporary topics. So I worked with this faith leader to kind of like, um, we, we kind of co-wrote the script together, the sermon, and a lot of it was around like, um, it started off with a bit on time management, so how do you manage your time? But then it went on to health. So it's speaking about, you know, we shouldn't be eating too much and we shouldn't be, um, you know, doing this. And yeah, I understand it's part of the culture, and but look at us. And he, he like specifically mentioned like in the community, how a lot of us are more at risk of diabetes and we are getting diabetes and a lot um, at a higher or quicker rate than, you know, any other kind of ethnic group. So it was kind of looking at them issues. So there was a bit of a follow up with that, um, that sheikh or that imam um, afterwards, um, just because, you know, we have that, you know, we're, we're more kind of like friends and then you know participant or someone included in my study but yeah the whole framework of my intervention it was it was following something called cbpr so it's a community-based participatory approach and that was looking at um involving um participants like um um like people in the community but also working with um, other stakeholders like the faith leader and even to an extent I worked with Leeds City Council, so you can see the range of different people I worked with. And it's thought by adopting such approach when you're creating an intervention kind of like by you, for you, you're more likely to engage and you, you have better retention. So it was looking at um, involving everyone, listening to all voices. So it was a team act. It wasn't like an individual um, kind of process. It's looking at multiple opinions and drawing out, you know, the best ideas from the best people and um, kind of filtering it out from there. Um, so so that was um, something that was quite interesting to get a bit of follow-up on that. There were positive um, responses from the community on that. Um, like with any PhD research, it's all very like pilot, so you're kind of like informing the development of larger and more complex interventions in the future. So 
hopefully at one point if I'm able to it'd be amazing to follow up on this research and you know apply for um for a grant for anyone that's applied for an academic grant it's a very complicated um <laughs> procedure for something that a lot of people might including myself you shy away from um but yeah hopefully one one day in the future if not myself then maybe someone else can take that research and and use it as groundwork to to build a a wider intervention on excellent yeah and i really like the levels that you you went through there around the the faith leader the council so obviously not just speaking to people taking measurements and saying look you know you're at risk of diabetes hba1c or your, you know your long form blood sugar is is very high and bmi is very high and this is quite concerning and actually you're 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 going wider so what's this person then seeing in their environment what are they listening to at friday prayer and things like that so um it's brilliant that you brought that up and obviously selfishly i wanted you to retell it because you told me the other week when we were, when we were having a bit of a chat on a work call and now i just found it really interesting because it just changes the tune doesn't it we see and especially on social media and things like that now you just see two foods compared to each other looking at calories looking at sugar saturated fat salt all those things and for some people that's easy they see it and they do it and they think oh that's a great food swap but for others it just isn't as simple as that so i like how you you went in there and it's it's so specific with a certain you know co- cohort of participants um if we you know if we can use that term because like you said it was a bit it was a study you had an intervention but on quite a few levels in terms of learning and education and that's almost how things have started and then like you said hopefully in years to come people can pick that up or you can pick that up and move it forward so it's uh yeah it's interesting you're obviously embedded in this and you're aware of the feasting culture but then you've got to speak to people in different areas and and just understand a bit more on the practical level too which must have been quite interesting obviously before the pandemic getting out to the field coming back going out coming back having interesting conversations with some of these faith leaders and council members and it doesn't sound easy but was it you know was it a a rewarding process i'm sure you working on it now and trying to get it all finalized is quite stressful but when you recount it like that it's quite impactful isn't it it is quite it's quite rewarding in the sense that you know even if you um you know get through to one kind of person so i come from a healthcare background having you know worked in the NHS and private practice over the years so I do find it really rewarding that even you know when you put the PhD to the side it's thinking about you know you've made you've made one person change their lifestyle or you've you know brought up something new to one person but even like you know going on in the future there's a lot of ideas I have um so you know a lot of us um guys like in healthcare but we, we understand that you know like the etiology of diabetes and obesity they're multifaceted, they're complex, like the human body is a very complex but connected system. So it goes beyond diet, it goes beyond exercise. It it you know, we're talking about like sleep hygiene, we're talking about stress, but then we're also trying to understand um different like behavioural influences. So, you know, culture, traditions, um, habits, like they, they all kind of form you know, like an individual's like level of wellness. So there's a lot to it. So I think um like on a, on a grand scale, it's, you know, having this kind of research out there, we don't know much about Arabs. Um, in particular in the UK, one thing that kind of struck me is that it wasn't until like 2011 that Arab, the Arab ethnic minority group were recognised as like an ethnicity um, on its own, like in the UK census. It was only brought in in 2011. So you can imagine like a lot of the data that we have out there. So I remember being younger and, you know, getting the 
get the UK census and the post and um, you know, it'd be like, so what's your ethnicity? So right, I'm not I'm not white, I'm not white Irish, I'm not black, I'm not South Asian, I'm not Chinese and then it's like you're just having to put yourself in a bracket where, you know, so it's interesting to to kind of like see or or even imagine how skewed a lot of the data is. So I understand that the Arab population and it it doesn't form a majority within the even within the ethnic minority group, but there's not a lot of research around Arabs. I think when we were younger, we'd just, um, you know, what's your ethnicity? You'd be like, right, South Asian. But really, the, the biology and genetics is um, very, very different. So even though South Asian people are more likely to get diabetes and Arabs are more likely to get diabetes, there's a lot of unknown around the, the Arab area. So even looking at that research outside of the UK, when we start looking at countries like the United Arab Emirates or, or Qatar or Kuwait or Iraq, there's very little research um, around, like, you know, the actual, um, like, the prevalence of, of diabetes in the region. We just know, we, we have an understanding that it's higher, um, you know, than, than, like, for example, the British or the white counterparts, but there's just there's just very little around that. But going back to the kind of, like, behaviours, um, it's it's interesting, like, having that, um, I know we spoke, uh, we spoke a few weeks ago about, you know, the different kind of cultures and the different behaviours, so within the Arab kind of ethnic um, group, there is not just the feasting culture, but there's a lot around kind of like like power and status. So um, I think we touched on how, you know, the larger you are or the larger BMI is or the curvier you are, it's seen as, um, you know, you being more kind of um, fertile. So it's like a, a, like a status of fertility. So, you know, myself with um, a very ideal BMI, so um, I think, you know, between the 20 to 25, I'm probably seen as um, being very, like, you know, like in poverty and very infertile. But when I go to, like, an Arab country, uh, I'm seen as, like, being on the, on the slimmer kind of side. Now, I know that BMI, there's a lot of a, a great area around that. It's not exactly the gold standard. It is a good indicator, but it's not a gold standard. Um, but, yeah, even even looking at BMI, like in the South Asian group, we know we have, um, you know, if you look at World Health Organization, we have different cutoffs for the South Asian group. So, um, you know, for the, the classifications are different. So being overweight or being um, obese or, or in the class one um, obese group, it, the cutoffs are different. So they're like 2.5 levels less than, than the BMI that you'd assign to, um, you know, like a different counterpart. So interesting, limited research, growing area. I think it's, yeah, I think it was selfishly, obviously, I wanted to get you on the pod. And I think people listening to this, if they are still listening, they'll be very interested as well um because it is a it is a fascinating area obviously you've you've scratched the surface i know that's probably not the best thing to say after doing four years of work and only scratching the surface but i think it's brilliant um bringing it forward and just advancing things like you said growing up from 2011 um you know get getting that uh getting that kind of um you know that that uh what's the what's the term to kind of say uh, not justification, but like you said, that must have felt really good to then be able to have have something yeah, to acknowledge. Yeah. Speaker, so we're there, we're here now. Yeah, exactly. Because people don't think about that when they're filling in forms and doing all those other kinds of things. And then, um, yeah, like you said, it is interesting how so many things have advanced. But like you said, in terms of views around what someone looks like, in terms of their their weight or 
you know, their proportions on their body and things and thinking about wealth and thinking about fertility and things like that. There'll be a lot of people listening that that's never been on their radar. Whereas like you said, when you, when you travel and things like that, especially when you're younger um, and, you know, you're just generally a bit more leaner than most, if we can say that, you know, it's, it's interesting. Not many people have kind of come across that because obviously usually it's the other way people tend to think about that kind of thing. So no, look, it's, it's been brilliant having a conversation with you around this. And I was obviously going to ask what, what's next, but you, you, you kind of answered that saying, like you said, you'd love to pick the research up and continue, or you'd love someone else to continue and pick it up. Um, I know obviously you've got, you've got, um, roles and things coming up around, around lecturing and, and researching and things before the end of the year and into 2021. But is, is there anything else you'd like the, the listeners to know about before, before we, you know, we mention how to get hold of you or anything like that? So one one more thing worth note worth noting so um, linking that in with my research a bit as well so one of the um, findings from the data analysis is looking at when we look when we explored physical activity and barriers to um, health um, it was there was a lot around the female group so um, there were a lot of um, kind of like health inequalities in that kind of group so a lot of females that were um, you know, unable to or not comfortable to go to a gym because of, you know, for example, the garments that they would wear. So it was seen as something like they don't want to go to a gym. I'm I'm aware that there's a lot of female gyms out there now, and you know that's growing. Um, but one thing that stood out was that you know even when we go to a female gym, if we want to, you know, lift a barbell or do some bar work, there's not the same kind of um, facilities you know in the female environment there's just like cardio equipment or machines but you know we don't have the same kind of access to um areas that you know our our males like you know the males have access to so that was something that was quite interesting to me so um keeping it short one of the things that we did do we had an exercise class um there's a personal trainer I, I delivered that so that was just to keep on top of the resources and everything but we did um, a couple of activity classes so they were female-led um delivered in a female um, environment and there was a lot of it was really good it was really good so we had good fun we used kettlebells and we, we weren't able to get um, that many barbells for the groups that we were working with um, and that was something that I did follow, follow up with Lee City Council so there's a bit of interest there in terms of maybe getting some um, you know if they were able to get some access to their own trainers to deliver it in the community they were willing to kind of do that for free or or you know subsidize it so um yeah there is a charity that i'm working or more a community interest kind of company that i'm working with um so they're called hop on um they're based in west yorkshire and they do everything that i've just pretty much spoken about so they're looking at um kind of empowering females and in, in the kind of ethnic community or, or clusters kind of in west yorkshire so working with them to um help them get out and help them um, you know, learn how to ride a bike, get on a bike, and even train them. You know, level up to to help them get onto the road. So they do different levels. So they're the kind of things that I possibly um, maybe took for granted. Like you know, in my younger years, I learned to ride a bike when I was very young. Um, and you know, even growing up, I was quite lucky that you know we'd hire the bikes and we'd, we'd go out into into the peaks or the peaks and go for for a bike ride, but not all communities so just having that awareness that not all communities have you know the same access or the same kind of privileges so um a lot of people that i worked with or working with at the moment even with a, with a charity and um, with a with a company community sorry community hop on 
there it's just it's just been amazing so pre pre lockdown so pre second lockdown we did um quite a good um they have a few events on a week but i did go to one of their events and it was just amazing to see you know like a a 50 year old woman wearing the islamic kind of garment and it was completely fine like she was on a bike it didn't get caught in anything and it was just great seeing her like learn how to ride a bike and you know it, it was it was just something that was just so rewarding to kind of be a part of like you know in the in the delivery and the, the teaching so that's something that um, i've recently met my latest um the, the, the latest hat that i'm wearing um so i've been offered um some training with british weightlifting um to help teach or, or coach the community and um, how to do a bit more olympic lifting so that's probably something that i'm, I'm probably off my like selfish things where i enjoy olympic weightlifting and you know based on the research i've done um independently um and you know through Louise beckett um one of the things where that people wanted to do it but it was just rare to see you know like a, a muslim woman like wearing a hijab or a headscarf or this Islamic garment doing it so you know there's a lot out there that there's um that there's more kind of initiatives out there um, more people are wanting to to do a bit more, but it's just helping you know women um, in this case, or helping the, the ethnic kind of minorities in the community, uh, help them feel empowered and just getting them out of there, getting you know uh, getting them feeling comfortable lifting a bar, you know doing their cleaning jerks and and just getting them moving really. And I think from that there's going to be a lot of like positive psychological impact as well. There's going to be a lot of um, you know a sense of like reward and a sense of you know, like discipline like like a lot of sport it, it, the foundations are like discipline and perseverance and, and things like that so that that's something that um i just wanted to point out so for anyone that's interested um i can essentially link in, in you you can include that so that's hop on and it's cycling that they do but they are bringing more sports into it like running walking and olympic lifting hopefully in 2021 Oh, brilliant. And I've linked to that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this lovely people, you can get access to what Hop On are doing. And I've also got your email in there, Jen, and your LinkedIn. So if people have any questions or they're interested in your research, they want to reach out, are they happy to contact you directly? Is that all fine? Yeah, absolutely. If anyone's got any queries, any feedback, anything at all, I'm, I'm happy to, to take that. Thank you. Cool. This is, you know, this has been for me such an informative podcast, and I hope for you as well, lovely people listening. It's definitely, it's definitely, you know, shone a light on a few things that I wasn't necessarily aware of. And we, you know, we came together. Obviously, like you said, we've got that health, fitness, lifestyle, uh, care backgrounds. We like working with people one on one. We like trying to form habits and add to people's toolboxes in terms of their movement, their nutrition. Um, but yeah, I think just I hadn't heard anyone before we spoke doing research in 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 that particular area. You know, with 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 um, the Arabs and, um, and 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 the ethnic minorities there. So yeah, it's been brilliant. Thanks so much. Considering, like you said, you've been you've been busy and working, and your brain's almost melting. You kind of came across really well there, and I think I think it you know hopefully made sense to most people listening. So um, no, it's been it's been a privilege to have you on. Thanks yeah, thanks for giving me some time. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed discussing um, my research and future plans. Thanks, Matt.
Excellent. Cool. Okay, lovely people. So look, as always, everything you need is in the show notes. So um, the ability to contact Jinan and uh, the information around Hop On. You've got the 33 fuel information around there, the natural sports nutrition products and the new attack the day. So outdoor clothing and loads of information around outdoor uh, fitness challenges, all those good things. So thanks for listening. Uh, I think I'm I'm past 140 episodes and 30,000 downloads. I'm coming towards the end of season three as well. And it's just brilliant having you along. So if you like the show, please share it with someone. Um, let Jinan know or, or myself. We're very approachable if you have any questions or comments. And it's brilliant bringing you the show. Keep listening. Keep sharing. We'll speak to you soon.